That is now recording. Back up. And um, signal if you're going to give shorter answers or longer ones. Great. And I'm looking at you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'll start off. <coughs> Cameron. Douglas Murray's new book is a bestseller both here in the United States and over on the other side of the Atlantic in his native Britain. Douglas, thank you for joining us. Yeah, it's a great pleasure to be with you. Why is your book so important? Why is it doing so well? What, what, what is it about your book that speaks to so many Americans? Um, well, if it's a hard thing to say yourself, um, and we were both brought up to be sort of self-deprecating and, and everything. No, you um, <laughs> I'll try not to be for a second. The, the truth is, is I think for um, a long time, a lot of people in America have realised there's something going on at a very deep level. Uh, we see all these in this news every day, there are sort of co things that are called culture wars, there's talk about woke, these, these sorts of things, but that, that's, that doesn't really address it. You know, there's stuff about curriculums and schools, but, but there's a sort of been a feeling of what's going on, there's something going on here. And I felt that for a long time, so I know what it feels like. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the War on the West, I, I try my best to explain what I think it is that has been going on, which is that w we are living at a time of cultural revolution in the West, mm -hmm. in America in particular. America is the center of this. And like all cultural revolutions in history, they are trying to completely rewrite the past, completely rewrite the story of America, the story of the West. In the case of America in particular, they're trying to, and they, they and we'll come on to who they are, <coughs> are trying to turn a story of amazing heroism into a story of evil and guilt. They're trying to reframe everything. They, things like the New York Times and the 1619 Project actually say they want to reframe the American story. Now that has been going on for some years. You could argue it's been going on for a couple of generations. But it's at a very deep level. And, and now we've been seeing in recent years the attempt to force that project of anti-Westernism, anti-Americanism, into the classrooms. You know, there was a time it was just about colleges, but now it's into the classrooms, into nearly all of the media, uh, and a reframing of the facts in front of us so that things we thought we knew, um, you know, such as the, the founding fathers were good, good figures, uh, are taken away from us. This is a cultural revolution that's being forced upon us. And in the war on the West, I try to identify exactly what it is and who is driving it. Mm -hmm. And I think. So I think, I suppose, my self-appointed task is to try to explain the deeper story about something we can all see in our lives every day. Delving, I think, down to the, the fundamental question, mm. um, which I think your, your, your book addresses. F fundamentally, do you believe that some cultures are better than others? Yes. And is the Western way of life superior to other non-Western I don't like the word superior because um, there's, there's sort of bad connotations in it. Um, it's better for us. That's one polite way of saying it. It's better for us. Uh, I actually also say it's demonstrably better in certain ways. Judging by the number of folk 
who were in the immigration queue with me at Atlanta, it's well, better for a lot of people I'm, around the world. I'm glad you give that example, Douglas. Exactly. I mean, and, and Americans know this must be the case because they see this. You know, when, when a couple of million migrants every year walk across the southern border of the United States into the United States, they do not meet Texans walking south, desperate to make it into Mexico and from there into southern America. Mm-hmm. They don't. Why? Well, there's obviously something that America is doing well. And, and, and here's the follow-on from that. If there's something America is doing well now, chances are it's because there's been something that America has done well in the past. Mm-hmm. You know, it didn't, it didn't just happen to land in the position of being the number one place of destination for migrants in the world. Mm-hmm. It's like that because something in America has been good. And, and that comes back to this, well, the superiority point. Uh, I say that people in the West have been polite uh, for some years now. Um, we know that our system works better than others in a whole range of ways. We know, for instance, that the Western scientific system works. It's not used by the rest of the world because it's invented by white men. It's, it, it's used because it works. So if we accept that some cultures are better at producing the Wright Brothers or the yeah. iPhone or Shakespeare... The free market. Should we also accept that Western culture itself has has improved. The way we live today in oh, 2020 yeah. is better than it, the way we lived in uh, 1620 or, or, or indeed 1950. Absolutely. I mean, I mean, look at, uh, speaking with one of Lincoln's biographers recently, you know, look at Lincoln's upbringing. He was basically brought up, brought up in, in, in the Iron Age. I mean, you know, there was, there was nothing. And, and, you know, to, today in America and in the West, we take things for granted that as you know, and you've written about yourself, in a couple of generations ago, seemed unfathomable. But but so but one quick, we need to recognise where it comes from. Mm-hmm. You know that it's not an accident. It's that something is good in the system in the West that allows, for instance, innovation, scientific innovation, technological innovation, and much more social improvement. Um, you know, we are interested in questions of whether or not we're getting stuff right in the West. Mm-hmm. We're interested in claims of racism or human rights abuses we're interested in that most of the world is not most of the world doesn't care now if cultural relativism is is one of the fundamental if, if it's the the ailment and much of what we see is a symptom of this you you suggested that it might be cultural relativism might be politeness you yes. said we in the west are polite we, yes. we maintain this fiction um, that all cultures are of equal validity but where else do you think this this idea of cultural relativism that comes from. Is it, mm. is it more than just politeness on, on the part of Westerners? It is. I mean, there are people who drive this. I, I, give, I give an example in the War of the West of, of... You can tell a lot by seeing the people who the, the unpleasant, ahistorical attacks are not done on. So in America, everybody guilty of living in the American past is attacked for the same thing now. They're attacked for having racial attitudes that we don't have in 2022 or do not think is acceptable. They were attacked for living in a time where slavery was engaged in, which it was engaged in sadly throughout the world. Uh, they were attacked for these sorts of sins. Who doesn't get attacked for this? Well, one example I give in the book of a dead white male who doesn't suffer these attacks is Karl Marx. Uh, Karl Marx's writings are infinitely more racist and reprehensible than any of the major Western and American figures in recent years who've come under attack. But, but why doesn't Marx get that treatment? Well, because a lot of the people pushing the anti-Westernism and the self-hatred on us are Marxists. You know, their, their answer is, the West is terrible, therefore Marxism. And so, of course, they're not going to reveal, as I do in the book, that 
you know, Karl Marx's private correspondence is littered with the use of the N-word, you so, know? So they'll happily tear down a statue of Thomas Jefferson because he didn't oh, yeah. subscribe to the values of 2022. But keep but Karl keep, Marx keep, there. Keep Marx. <laughs> I mean, it's not hard to work out what's going on there. You know? Now, on, I would say one of the reasons why America is the most successful republic that has ever existed is fundamentally because the principles of the founding, I don't mean the application of those principles, but the principles of the founding, mm were revolutionary. Um, for most of human history, people were defined by caste, by race, by birth, by what yeah. they were born. America comes along and it says, all are created equal. Mm. People have inalienable rights. Yes. The obsession with focusing on race threatens that very principle, doesn't it? It, it doesn't just threaten it. I mean, it, it will absolutely blow it up. Uh, I, I mean, as you know, in the first chapter of the book, I, I, I go straight into the race issue. Uh, because it's a very important one, because I think we in America in particular, we, we both live here, uh, uh, we in America have this obsession about racism. And obsessions can lead to a distorted view. Mm -hmm. And I give examples of how distorted the American view of American racism actually is today. Now, nobody denies that there has been historical racism. It would be ridiculous to try uh, and insulting. Uh, but what is the situ situation today in America? Well, judging by opinion polls, and also by notorious crowd stampedes I go into in the book, moral panics, there's a large percentage of the American population, particularly young Americans, who have a provably distorted view of the country. They actually think that the country today is a country, for instance, in which thousands of unarmed black men are massacred every year by the police, which is provably not the case. I mean, as I show, people's sense of, 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 the, of that issue, for instance, is wildly out, out, out of all proportion. I mean, any uh, um, you know, death of somebody in, in, in terrible circumstances is, is, is bad, but uh, like, is it really the case that, for instance, George Floyd's um, killing is emblematic of America? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Uh, we, can, we can tell that by the fact that there was the outcry. There is the outcry there was. We can tell by the fact that the policeman held responsible is serving a lifetime imprisonment in jail. Um, so, so there has been this provable ch shift in the, in the narrative in America so that at a position when racial differences and racial harmony, harmony have never been, so as it were, at a more desirable state, more to do, absolutely, but they are presented as if they've never been worse. I quote people in the book who say, there's been nothing that's improved in the, in the state of race relations in America in the last, last half century. Okay, what? Um, uh, there are people who say that everything in America is now to be looked at solely through the lens of racism and white supremacy and institutional racism and institutional bias and, and much more. We get all these pathologizing terms for white people, white fragility, white rage, and, and, and much more. And as I say, this is not even suitable to address the specific questions. I mean, if you want to, for instance, address questions of, you know, why there is underperformance in some areas of, of black America compared to white America, um, is the if you say the only explanation for any difference is institutional racism, mm. well, you have to explain why, for instance, Asian Americans outperform white Americans. Mm. Is, is, are white supremacists in America and institutional racism so inept 
that they are so bothered by trying to keep black Americans down that they didn't notice when Asian Americans came and, and, and got... It's absurd. It's a, it's a multidimensional problem, and we do ourselves a deep disservice on so many levels if we pretend that that very complex, multidimensional problems are actually expl explainable by one thing, which is always racism. I, I find so much the narrative, particularly here in the southern United States, on the left, is to find any difference mm. between gender or ethnic groups yeah. as evidence of discrimination. And I, I wonder if that's doing a disservice, actually, because it prevents us from actually having a broader conversation that might actually yes. resolve some of these issues. I, I, I mean... As it happens, you know, um, I, I give the example in the book that uh, people who describe themselves as as very liberal um, and almost almost fifty percent believe that over ten thousand Black Americans are killed every year by the police. Well, why do I reiterate this this point? As it happens, ten thousand Black Americans were killed last year. Who were they killed by? Other Black Americans. So. I mean, if, if, if the country and the media cared about black lives as much as they pretend to, that would not be the almost unspoken issue that it is. It has consequences in cities like Jackson where we're yes. talking. Um, it has now one of the highest homicide rates of any yeah. town or city in the United States. And the people who are being killed are black Americans. Overwhelmingly, young males, and no one seems to be taking it seriously. It's, it's not a problem of uh, uh, police brutality. Right. If anything, actually, we need the police to be more vigilant. Yes, um, and, and so as I say, these, these are the practical consequences of misrepresenting the state of America at the moment. Now, often... Because America is such a polite country, when absurd ideas come along, they're sort of ignored yeah. and they're not challenged. And suddenly we find that they become orthodoxy on the left. Yeah. This idea of reparations, explain why it is so absurd. Yeah, reparations is now one of the blunt tools being used against America and against the wider West. Um, reparations pretty much went away as an issue, as on the fringes really, until, uh, until eight years ago, when a very distinguished, very celebrated, certainly American author, Tanahazi Coates, wrote an article in the Atlantic magazine called The Case for Reparations, and it really did change the, the, this, this debate. It was taken very seriously. It was immediately uh, picked up on by leading Democrats, to the extent that in the 2020 pr Democrat primaries, every person in the Democrat primaries talked about reparations, and some said they actually wanted to institute this. Well, <laughs> here is, as you know, I do a chapter on this, but I mean, here is in, in tiny summary why reparations is a disaster to even be talking about seriously. Uh, it's two centuries since slavery was done away with. Um, you're no longer talking about reparations consisting of a wealth transfer from people who did something wrong to people who were wronged, which would have been the case 200 years ago, you could say. Yeah. Today, you're not even talking about the descendants of people who did something wrong, making a wealth transfer to the descendants of people who were wrong. You're talking about a wealth transfer from people who look like people who did something wrong in the past to people who look like the people who were wronged. Now, as you know, in America, there is big discussion about whether it is racist to ask people to show any identification when they go to the polls, uh, when they go to the voting uh, booths. 
that there is such controversy in America about this. Voter ID uh, is, is said to be a racist dog whistle. Well, wait till you get to the government demanding that you give a DNA test to prove where your ancestors what were What your great-great-great-great-grandparents do to somebody else's great-great-great. Right, great, great, and great we have to carry out a sort of massive, complete nationwide racial audit, which mm -hmm. is what it would need, mm -hmm. to work out, for instance, I mean, the people who've arrived since slavery ended not have to be taxed in this way, for instance. I mean, what about Barack Obama? He comes from Kenyan ancestry. Mm -hmm. um, would he have to give a DNA test? It's, uh, it's highly likely, what's more, and Obama might be an example, uh, uh, that um, people will be shown, if it was possible to do this absolutely impossible task, will be shown to be descended from slavers and slaves. I mean, after all, who sold uh, the um, black Africans into slavery but their brother Africans? Uh, who stole the, the slaves and sold them to the Arabs and to, to Europeans? Black Africans. So what do we do? Do, do, do people get a 50% discount if it turns out they have a slave <laughs> owner in their background? I mean, it's absurd. And, and it's, it's now spilled out everywhere. I mean, and this is why I, mean, I say it's, it's about the whole of the West. It's not just America. I mean, America is a big enough subject, but the whole of the West is being put through this. Every minor member of the royal family now, whenever they go on a, a tour, there are demands for apologies and reparations from the royal family. I mean, to be fair, as, a, as an Englishman, I, I do want reparations from the French for occupying my country in 1066. <laughs> and what yes. about the Italians? The Italians? We were part of the Roman Empire. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Go and demand a check from Rome. <laughs> and see where you get. I mean, even more recently, the Barbary pirates, Thomas Jefferson was much exercised by, um, the Barbary pirates uh, um, stole Europeans, the North Africans stole Europeans for decades from, the, from port towns in England yeah. and elsewhere. Maybe one and a half million Europeans were stolen in this way. Do, do their descendants get, they get to call for everything? I mean, my point is, again, this, in the name of racial harmony, is putting just a bomb under race relations yeah, in the yeah. US, and we have to identify it now. You've got a very interesting chapter on China in the book. Mm. I mean, I, I grew up believing in what you might call the sort of the convergence theory. Mm. I thought that post um, um, 1978, mm. um, China was basically moving our way, right. and, and it was all gonna, we were all gonna end happily ever after. Mm. But China's not really going that way, is it? No. No, it's not. I mean, and you know, now looking back, you know, maybe it was a big mistake to allow them into the World Trade Organization and other such bodies. I mean, I, I talk about China because in the 21st century, there is, as you know, only one country that could overtake America as the world's number one economy. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't even have to perform, as you know, that much better simply in terms of the number of people in China. Um, it's it, it just has to slightly increased living standards and prosperity for, for the average Chinese person to outperform America in the 21st century. What would that mean? I mean, a total change in the whole world order. You know, if America stops being number one, everybody who'd been riding on America's coattails in terms of finance, in terms of economy, in terms of, of, of defense, will also feel no, that. No superpower has been as benevolent as the United States, with no possible exception. Not even Britain was as benevolent. No, I, I, I say, I mean, um, when America's gone around the world, it hasn't, as Colin Powell once beautifully said, it's never demanded any more land than the land to bury her dead. You know, um, the, the people who think 
people who think that the Chinese, that the, 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 the sorry, people who think that the American era of hegemony and and you know global leadership was terrible. I mean, they're going to love the Chinese century. Ask the Tibetans about it. Absolutely. I mean, ask the people of Shanghai screaming out of their windows yeah. the other night. Look at how the Chinese Communist Party treats Chinese people to get an idea of how they will treat the rest of the world. Look how they treat yeah. people in Africa today. I mean, this is another of the obscenities about the Western self-hatred, self-annihilating, tearing at ourselves and our history and our present. We ignore what is happening in the present today in terms of actual slavery going on today, actual colonialism going on today, you know, actual racism going on today on a massive scale. I mean, one million people in concentration camps in China as we speak you know, maybe part of the problem is we're distracting ourselves so much with these, with these directed focuses on our own long distant past that we can't see what's going on right in front of our eyes. I think it's a very, very good way of putting it. If you want to see what a Chinese superpower would treat the world, look at how they treat yeah. their own people today. Um, on a slightly different note, I was very struck by one of the chapters in your book on gratitude. Um, the older I get, the more I realise actually I think the key to a happy life is to be grateful for what you've got. And I, yes. so on a morning I don't wake up in America and think, thank goodness I'm in America. Yeah. Yeah. And by feeling grateful for being here and by feeling grateful for the good things, all those irritating things that we all have in our life become kind of manageable. And I wonder if yeah. gratitude is not good for society on the same basis. If, if, if a society is grateful for what it has and a culture is grateful for what it is, the petty gripes it has are manageable. Absolutely, absolutely. The, the um, it's it's a key issue. I say uh, in that chapter that the thing that has distinguished uh, the current era we're in and the anti-Westernism in the West, on the West, against the West, has been resentment. You know, uh, our societies haven't done everything I want them to do. You know. Every person who founded the state and made sure that I, you know, ended up here with this stuff hasn't been exactly who I would like them to be. People in the past do not share precisely my views that I hold in 2022. And therefore, you know, I'm going to feel resentful against America, resentful against the West, resentful against capitalism, resentful against the democratic process. Resentful. Everybody can do this, but it's very un-American. <laughs> among other things. As I see it, um, America has been built not just on optimism, that's often been said, but on gratitude. And gratitude is the only counterweight. Thanksgiving Day. Thanksgiving, exactly. It's actually built into the, in, into the calendar of America. I had my first Thanksgiving yeah. Day and I, I loved it. I, yes. I felt grateful for being here. Say what you're grateful for. Yeah. Say what you're grateful for. This is such an important thing. And and it's not a deflection. It doesn't mean we can't address issues that we need to address by any means. But resentment is an incredibly deep human uh, emotion. And people of all wealth brackets can feel it. You know, it's not a, it, it, it's not, we know it's a, a common human uh, failing, a common human temptation to, to blame other people all the time if, if the world isn't exactly as you would like it to be. But you can turn that around, and the only way you can turn it around as an individual, as with a society, is with an equally deep thing, which is gratitude. You know, I, I, and I say, I say towards the end of the book, I, I, I quote, perhaps a surprising figure to quote, I quote Branch Rickey, who said, 
once. He said, luck is the residue of design. And we often get told, you know, you're lucky to be born in America, you're lucky to live in America. But it's not just luck. Um, the luck comes about because people before us made good decisions that we are benefiting from. And in that situation, you can say, look, this guy 300 years ago didn't have my views. You can say this person didn't have the perfect life as I see it. Or you could say, wow, I'm grateful for these people for, against extraordinary odds, landing me, among others, in this situation. When you say consequences of people in the past making good choices, you don't just mean good choices in a courthouse in Philadelphia in the summer of 1787. You mean maybe no. your father and mother making good choices to oh. give you the best chance in life. Oh, well, that's absolutely the case. I mean, you know, it's the case in, 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 you know, in families as it is in countries. You know, there is, well, we have a, it's a very a complex thing, I think, in a way for us to understand this ourselves, is that, you know, because we, for instance, some people are unlucky. And so, for instance, I don't know, you know, something bad happens to you in your life. and Illness. Illness. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a terrible thing. And, and you've got this, on the one hand, it's just bad luck. On the other hand, there's, what are you going to do with it? You know, are you going to live in, in unhappiness about this? You're going to try to make the best of the, the situation you're in. Um, and it's the same, with, it's the same with, with families. It's the same with, you know, quite often when we say people are, are lucky in being born in a certain area or things, it's, it's true on one level, isn't it? It's true that, you know, we have no say in how we're born and where and exactly what circumstances. But the, the people who brought us into, into the world have actually had to make choices. Very often they've had to make, almost always, significant sacrifices. Mm. They've had to be careful with decision-making, careful with money and much more. Mm. Well, it's the same with countries. You know, mm. I never forget a Norwegian politician who once said to me, you know, we have exactly the same energy reserves as Venezuela. But there's a reason why Venezuela is Venezuela and Norway is Norway. It's because we made better decisions here. I just want to finish with a tweet that really struck me. It was several years old, and um, it was by Ilan Omar, and she had just been elected to Congress, and it was a very striking tweet because it's on this issue of, of gratitude mm. and uh, chance and luck. And she was celebrating the fact that it was 23 years since she had walked through that airport in Washington. Mm. And when she had walked through that airport for the first time 23 years before, she had come to America as a refugee. Mm. And 23 years later, she was walking through that same airport as an elected official going mm. to the, the, the federal legislature. And yet she seems to draw precisely the opposite conclusion to the one that I would draw, which is, thank goodness for America, isn't yes. America wonderful? She seems to have shown, and I, I, I picked this just as an example, of staggering ingratitude. Yes, and in fact, even to say that, uh, if you said that to her, she would accuse you of racism. You know, it's like, well, you're trying to silence me. You're trying to say that I don't have the right to make criticism. No, <laughs> you know, that's not the case at all. It's just as you say, she seems to have taken exactly the wrong attitude to, towards the country. Well, he arrived here, said, yeah, thanks, pocketed it, and then decided to hate on it. What, what I would love to be able to do is travel back 23 years yeah. and interview her and find out, did she come to America mm. with that view or... Mm. Does she have that view as a consequence yes, of leftist a, indoctrination in America? Th that's a very, that would be a very interesting thing if you could get an honest answer out of her, <laughs> that would be itself also very interesting. Um, but, but here's the thing with this, you know, in America, when I know somebody like Arne Omar, somebody arrives in the, in the country, and they, 
they can, if, if they're grateful to the country and, and love the country, you know, America celebrates its people, you know, with amazing gratitude itself as a reciprocal they, thing. They go out of their way to do it. Absolutely, they're thrilled. And, I mean, first of all, Ilan Omar is elected, so she's obviously popular with a certain number of people. Um, and it's true that she gets criticism for elsewhere, but that criticism is largely the criticism that you'd, you'd feel if, if somebody came to your house and, you know, you welcomed them and you... you, you brought them to the table and then they started telling you that your cooking was terrible. I mean, it's a, there's a basic sense of, you know, that's kind of ungrateful. Particularly and, if it wasn't terrible. <laughs> yeah, and particularly if it wasn't terrible. And, 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 and here's the thing for this, and it can't be stressed enough, America and the West, we're, we're the only societies that do this. We're the only societies where people actually come into the, our countries, make their way up within a generation, and, and then we allow a discussion about whether their own precise career path doesn't or does demonstrate that we are wicked and awful. Yeah. Um, if, if, if you or I um, moved to Ilan um, Omar's native uh, Somalia, um, you know, it's kind of a strange choice, but, but, but would we be able to get to the top of politics in that country? No way. If you or I, or Ilan Omar for that matter, moved to India, would we ever get into the Indian parliament? No. Um, very, very unlikely. Um, yeah. would, would we be able, if we moved to China, or Ilan Omar moved to China, is there any likelihood that we would end up on the, 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 on the, you know, the, in, the, in the halls of power of the Chinese Communist Party? No. Would you be able to get a fair hearing in a local court? <laughs> no, exactly. The answers to all these things are no, because these countries aren't concerned with the things that we have obsessed over. And... As a result, and it's a, it's a famous um, paradox that Daniel Patrick Moynihan put his finger on many years ago, there's a paradox that the countries that are most free and least racist might give off the impression that they're the least free and the most racist because we talk about these things. China doesn't, but you know, don't think that's because there's anything good that the Chinese Communist Party does, or you know that there aren't problems in India. You know, it, it, it's it's free societies that do this to ourselves, and that's good, and it's part of us. But you have to make sure that you that you know how to differentiate between legitimate criticism and helpful criticism, and just hatred of your society. And I think in America in particular, we've been indulging people who just hate the society. You end up in a situation where the United States official at the UN Assembly is berating her own country, giving Russia and China ammunition to throw yes. at America. The, the, American, the current American ambassador to the UN, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, um, berated America at the United Nations and said what a racist country it is and that it's born in racism and accused America of racist crimes and did not commit. Um, and, you know, then in passing mentions on the floor of the UN the, the treatment of Uyghur Muslims in, in China. And the next person up on the floor is a Chinese representative who says, you have no right to lecture us because America has today done something unheard of at the United Nations and come and confessed her guilt. You know, as I say, we have to be very careful yeah. in the West. Legitimate self-criticism, as you well know, it, it is a very good and useful thing. But there's a point at which it becomes very self-destructive, very masochistic. And whereas I say it actually distracts us from things that are going on today. You know, the important point to mention past, there are reckoned to be 40 million, four zero million slaves in the world today, which is more than there were in the 19th century. If we cared about slavery, we could address that. You know, 
if we actually cared about racism, we could address one million people in concentration camps in China. My suspicion is that we don't, and that the West, people in the West in this era have found it more comfortable, more comfortable to beat up on Western societies, to beat up on our own freedoms, to beat up on our own past. It's infinitely easier. It leads us, weirdly, to having an easier life, but it makes life worse for everybody. To conclude, your book is a wake-up call. It's, it, yes, it, 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 reading so. it really does articulate uh, a very powerful case as to why we should sit up and take these things seriously. But it's also optimistic. Yeah. You're an optimist about America. Why is that? I am. Uh, well, I, I, I tell you why. It's actually something that's happened in the last year. I, I don't believe in... Um, I, I, I mean, I admire some politicians... Um, but I don't believe that people should sit around waiting for a politician to come and save us. You know? <laughs> We've been waiting a long time. We've been waiting a long time um, until the absolutely perfect you know, person comes along. Uh, what I see in America is people who aren't doing that. What is one of the great successes in this state and across the nation in the last year? It's parent power. It's parent power asserting itself. It's parents saying... I've just found out you're teaching this horrible critical race theory to my kids. I'm not having it. Yeah. Now, you know, joining school boards. I mean, there, a friend of mine in one district said that there are people applying for, for board positions that aren't available. There's so much desire to, for parents to correct uh, the things that they found out are going on in American schools. That's the answer. So, uh, uh, you know, and I, and I suppose in conclusion, I... My, the reason I'm an optimist about America long term, I think in the short term we've got a, a pretty rough time ahead. But in the long term, I don't think that people who are anti-American are going to be able to win. And, and here's why. If you said to any minority group, you're terrible, you're racist, all of your ancestors were terrible, you've got nothing to be proud of, uh, all your founding fathers were terrible, North, South, everyone in the Civil War was terrible. Everyone, don't have any heroes, you don't have the right to anyone. You shouldn't be courageous or brave in your life. You should just slink through life. You know. um, if you said that to a minority, I don't think any minority should or would put up with that. They'd mm. say, you know, we're not having that. Um, well, here's the thing in America. The, the, the critical race hucksters and others, the anti-Western, anti-American people, are trying to say this to the American majority. I don't think that's going to fly. I think there's a mood change since I I've been here. I think there's a mood change. I think people are saying, no, hang on, our country's not been perfect. We know that. That's not a secret. No country's perfect. But, but you know, we've, we're doing something right. We've done something right. I, I think that, that in, a, in America, you will not persuade the majority in the end that America is a project to be ashamed of. I think they understand that it is a project a country, a state, a republic to be immensely proud of. And if that is the case, as I think it is, the American majority will win, not just because they're a majority, but because it just so happens that the facts and history are on their side. I think also your book will be part of that. I think your book and the work of, that you've done and Christopher Rufo have done, I think, I think if there are um, two people who've... Mm. Uh, changing the way America feels and thinks. I think you're one of them. So thank you so much for your book. Thank you for being here. It's a great honour. Thank you. Thank you. Were you happy with that? Yeah, great. Wonderful. Really enjoyed it. Got covered a lot of ground. Yeah, I'm sorry it went on a bit. No, no, no. no. I'm very pleased we did. Um, 
Now, I will slice that up. I will make it available to National Review. Um, oh, I know cool. WLBT, the local TV station, will take bits of it. Um, right. And, you know, and we're, we're also filming this afternoon. Yeah. The, the, the lunch thing. And oh, similarly, we'll make that available. Oh, great. Excellent. Um, C-SPAN asked if they could come. Um, uh, they didn't in the end. Right. Um, but what I will do is...